0: sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing, and the melody that he gave to me with it. Him, though the night around me be falling, but He bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is called. Joy we share as as we take.
1: Thank you. No need to applaud. Simply enjoy. Oh. <laughs> All right, take your Bible. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18. I said I was going to begin a new series on thankfulness, and the it's entitled It's your turn to be thankful. It's your turn to be thankful. And we're going to talk about a number of things. Today, uh, we're going to see that uh, we need to be thankful for what God has done. Past tense. What He has done. It's your turn to be thankful. Notice what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's bad enough, he's telling us, he says, and everything give thanks. And we're like, Are you kidding me? And then he turns around and said, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And what he's saying is basically is that you want to do the will of God. You say, I don't know what the will of God for my life is. Well, it's to give thanks and everything. That's one that there, there's one thing. He outlines it in the Word of God. There it is. You say, I don't know. I don't know what the will of God is for my life. I'll tell you what it is. One of the things, at least, at least we see it outlined here, in everything, give thanks. There you go. You say, I'm not giving thanks for everything. Well, then you're not in the will of God. I mean, isn't it right? Okay. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, that's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, concerning me, concerning all believers. And so we're told to be thankful now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look forward to thanksgiving, and, uh, you know, thank, thankfulness is often a highlight, right? We talk about that during this time of year, but, and I don't need to take a lot of time, nor do I need to really take any time to tell you that we live in a society that's growing ever more unthankful. There's ingratitude everywhere we turn, isn't there? Whether it's in the home or out in the workplace, or possibly just as citizens and around our neighborhoods, and just in interacting with friends and family and all kind of folks, there's a, an element where ingratitude seems to be on the rise, and it's in—I mean, it's just an epidemic proportion. It seems now over the next three weeks, I want to preach this series, and, and again, it's entitled "It's Your Turn to Be Thankful." And this morning, I want to begin by addressing this topic. Being thankful for what God has done. we got to remember what God has done, and we need to be reminded often. And in in, in being reminded, we can uh, can find gratitude. And again, this morning in the Sunday school, if you were in a Sunday school class, you already kind of are going to touch on one of the areas that we're thankful for or reasons that we should be thankful. But again, let's address this this morning. Let's take just a few minutes and consider that thought. Be thankful for what God has done. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all you've done for us, and again, Lord, there's no doubt that we uh, could probably be more thankful in many areas of our life. The truth is, as human beings, Lord, we are very prone to complaining. It's easy for us to want something else other than what we have. You address that in your word often. You tell us that we're to be content in whatsoever state we are, you Remind us not to envy the things of others, and Lord, yet we struggle with those things, and those things at times can create an attitude of ingratitude in our hearts and lives. And I ask, dear God, that you'd help us as we reflect on just a few thoughts this morning, or reasons why we ought to be thankful for what, uh, you know, thankful to you for, and 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 it's the things you've already done for us. Now, Lord, be glorified in this service. I have nothing to say to this thy people except you give it to me first. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and allow me to be your mouthpiece today. Thank you for this wonderful group that's gathered today to receive from your word. Lord, we need to hear from you. And so we commit ourselves to this moment. Lord, we pray that there'll be no distractions. Put a hedge about us and keep Satan out. And may our minds not be distracted in the least as the word of God goes forth. And may we, Father, be stronger and better equipped to please you and to honor you. Now, Lord, again, if there be those that are without Christ, that have yet to trust and receive Him, that do not know for sure heaven's their home, may they settle that today. May they not leave here with doubt or questions or even guessing, but may they be confident knowing that they have Christ as Lord and Savior. We love you now. We need you. We'll give to you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. So. You say, okay, well, be thankful for what God has done. Well, what has God done? Well, first, we need to be thankful for his compassion. His compassion. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Again, there's nothing that's going to probably be super new to you. I mean, many of you have been probably been in church a long time, but even if you haven't, you may have heard some of what we're going to talk about, especially if you've come to Jesus Christ as your Savior. But notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. This is so important for us to understand. Even as born-again believers, even as those that have already accepted and trusted Christ as Savior, we've got to remember where we came from and understand what God's really working with. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, and again, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used, have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips. Wow, what a description of humanity. I mean, this is a description of you and I without Jesus Christ. This is a description of what and who we were. This is reminding us again that we did not seek after Him. He sought after us. And yet, he loved us in spite of our sin, in spite of the fact that we rejected him, in spite of the fact that we were, as the Bible says, enemies to God because he was holy and righteous, and we in our sin opposed his will and his authority over us. He still loved us. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. There together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That means me and that means you. We, we had nothing to offer God, nothing to offer him. And yet he loved us anyway. He expressed and extended compassion to you and I anyway. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can I just say, as I'm saying those words, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's funny, I don't have to know anything. I just need to speak his word. And the reality is there's power in the word of God. You say, I don't have a lot of answers, and I wouldn't know what to say to somebody. Well, just quote some scripture then. That's where the power comes from. There's nothing that will change a life like God's word. Nothing will change a life like God's Word. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And then we read last week, I believe in 1 John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. How do I know God loves me? Because He died for me. He laid His life down Amen. for me. I have no question about that. No question, at least intellectually, no question whatsoever. He left the comforts of heaven to carry a cross. I mean, think about that. Well, turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 8 9, and we'll read about it. But he literally left heaven. He left the comforts of heaven to carry a cruel cross. Amazing, isn't it? It really is. It's mind-boggling. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. There in the passage we read, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't know it as well as I should maybe. Well, let's keep reading and we'll even know better than ever. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Amen. Now that's grace, right? Unmerited favor, undeserved favor. No, there, there is no reason why God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sat in the heavenlies and was waited on by legions of angels, no reason why he should come to this earth and suffer the indignities that he did on my behalf that is grace and it also extends into mercy in the end luke 19:10 says for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost well we need to be we need to be thankful for the compassion for the love of god in our lives he's extended that love and he demonstrated that love by going to calvary and paying for our sin and again It's so important that we remember he came to us. Christopher Searcy, he was playing basketball with his friends on May the 16th, back in 1998. And while playing basketball, he was shot in the chest. And a bullet perforated his aorta. That's pretty serious business. His friends helped him get to within 40 feet of the entrance to Ravenswood Hospital then they went inside and asked for help, and the hospital staff refused to help Christopher, saying that it was against the hospital's policies to administer aid to those that were outside the hospital. Sorry we can't go out and administer any kind of aid. It's our policy. It has to be here in the hospital. Eventually, a police officer was able to get a wheelchair out to Christopher, placed him in the wheelchair, rolled him on into the hospital, where finally he was helped by the staff. Now that's alarming to me, and that seems almost inconceivable in my mind, and yet we know it happened. Wait a second, but I want to tell you this. I'm glad this morning to tell you that Jesus Christ didn't look at me here on earth and say, well, I'm sorry, but I can't leave heaven to come to you and save you. No, instead, He said, I will leave glory, and He literally sought me out. He came to me. There's a song we sing It says, The gulf that separated me. From Christ my Lord It was so vast The crossing I could never ford. From whence I was to his domain It seemed so far I cried dear Lord I cannot come to where you are He came to me He came to me When I could not come to where He was He came to me That's why He died on Calvary when I could not come to where he was, he came to me. Amen. Can I tell you, he came to you too. Boy, I'll tell you what. I want you to understand that compassion moved Christ to leave heaven and search for you. Hey, it's your turn to be thankful. It's my turn to be thankful. But not only that, but we need to be thankful for the cross. Not just for, the, for his compassion, but for the cross. Turn again to, I, I say again because this morning we turned to Isaiah 53. But turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. Be thankful for the cross. We're, we're talking about, be thankful for what God has done. His compassion, the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 3 here in the book of Isaiah, we find one of the most powerful, powerful prophecies pointing to Christ and outlining his literal sacrifice. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We hid it as, and we as if it were our own, our faces from him. He was despised and We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10. This is unbelievable. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We don't have time to talk about that. But can I tell you, the master was pleased to see. The cost of Calvary recognized the cost, but he saw past the cost, and he saw the converts. And he said, you know what? It's worth it all. I don't know how deeply you've ever contemplated the cross or the atonement of Jesus Christ. In this passage, it is evident and it is extremely clear that he endured tremendous physical pain and agony. However, there's another side to this equation that I believe far surpasses the physical. I mean, it's hard to imagine, hard to imagine that anything possibly could, but I believe it did. See, I've heard a number of sermons and a lot of lessons on the cross. And let's face it, most often when we address this issue, we talk about the gory details of the the psychological pain, the physiological stress that's imposed upon a victim of crucifixion, and understandably so and rightly so. But in Jesus' case, with the crown of thorns upon His head, the nails through His hands, and a sword in His side, all of those things, all of those agonies that He endured, they were painful, yes, I'm sure, but I don't believe that they occupied his mind as much as the idea of being separated from his father. I mean, yes, having a body, Jesus certainly felt every blow, but I doubt that the pain was even worthy to compare to the pain that he had to endure while he received the very punishment of hell that you and I personally deserved. See, what I'm saying is that the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and feet, the sword that ultimately, uh, the spear in his side, nothing compared to the the coming curse of God that he would bear. See, I don't know what it means experientially to be completely cursed of God. I can't wrap my mind around that. To be cut off from his presence completely, to be sent to a realm of absolute darkness like Jesus was. I can't wrap my mind around that but it would far surpass any physical attack. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what it would be like for you to be cursed by God, to be cursed of God, to be cut off from His presence completely. It's hard to imagine because we've never been in a place like that. Even if you're lost today, the presence of God plays a factor in your life every single day. The grace of God is still being extended to some degree or another. But I want you to think about that. What it would be like to be cursed of God, to be cut off from His presence, to be sent to a realm of absolute darkness. And can I tell you that's exactly... Well, you will find yourself if you fail to trust and receive Jesus Christ who paid the curse on your behalf. See, he willingly took our place on Calvary. In John ten seventeen, he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. As he was in that garden and his, you know, he had sweat drops of blood and he kept crying out, oh Lord, if it be, you know, take this cup from me, but not my will, thy will. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. I don't believe it was the physical pain and agony that he would face. I don't believe that's what he feared the most. What I think that he dreaded more than anything else was the total separation between him and his father that God would turn his back on him, that he'd be cursed of God because of the sin of the world that he would take into his own body that day. If you were to look at Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses, your attention would probably be drawn first to the center cross on which Jesus Christ died. Then as you would look at the crowd gathered around the foot of the cross, You'd be impressed by the various expressions on the faces of those that are painted and the actions of the people involved in light of that horrible crime that took place in crucifying the Son of God. Finally, though, your eyes would drift to the edge of the painting. It'd catch the sight of another figure almost hidden in the shadows. Art critics say that this is a representation of Rembrandt himself. Because he recognized that by his sins, he helped nail Jesus to the cross. You know, you and I put him there, in essence. I know that he willingly took our our place. I know that he died on his terms. Nobody killed Jesus. He submitted himself to death. He surrendered himself. He willingly laid down his life, yes, but it was because of our sin. See, it's been pointed out that on the hill of Calvary, there were three crosses and three men. One man died in sin. One man died to sin. And one man died for sin. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How thankful are you for the man who died for sin? More specifically, for your sin. See, it's your turn to be thankful. It's my turn to be thankful. Not only do we recognize and note that we ought to be thankful for his compassion, we ought to be thankful for the cross We need to be thankful for the Comforter. Turn if you would to Matthew chapter 20, please. The life of Christ is coming to an end. And He begins to prepare His disciples by informing them of some coming events. Namely, His trial, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His return. In Matthew chapter 20, we read of it, Chapter 20, verse 18. Matthew 20, verse 18. The Bible says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus Christ is speaking now. Speaking to His disciples, and He says, Behold, we come up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death. We know from reading in Scripture that they brought false witnesses of which none, as was pointed out even in Sunday school this morning, none of those would corroborate, if you will, corroborate, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Corroborate, I guess that's it. I need to watch some more shows about court. But none of those testimonies were the same. And as a result of that, Jesus sat in silence, and there was none to condemn him. But, ultimately, he would give them the fodder needed to do just that by claiming to be literally God. I am, he said. Oh, that's powerful. Nonetheless, he told his disciples and warned them that he would go, that he was going to be betrayed, that he would be condemned to death. And verse 19, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again, he told them. Boy, they were a discouraged bunch. Look at John chapter 14. What a discouraged group of men they became. To think that they had traveled and had invested their time, their lives, into this movement into a man, Jesus, who claimed to be God in flesh, Emmanuel, who they believed was indeed Messiah and would ultimately establish a kingdom. And now he says, I'm going to die, fellas. I won't be around much longer. Well, in John chapter 14, verse 1, notice the Bible as the Lord reminds them and he begins to encourage them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. He says, now listen, I'm going to go away. There's no doubt we're going to go to Jerusalem and some bad things are going to happen. As a matter of fact, you're not going to see me on earth much longer. And the fact is, is that, well, I won't be here. I'll be gone. I'm I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again, for sure. But don't worry, I'll come back. But in the meantime, in my absence, I'm going to send you another comforter. So he continues in John chapter 14, look at verse 16. And I will pray the Father... And he shall give you another comforter. Why would it be another comforter? Because at this point, Jesus himself had been the comforter. It didn't matter what the disciples were going through, what circumstance they faced. They always had Jesus Christ they could turn to. But he says, I'm not going to be here now. But I promise you, fellas, don't worry. I'm coming back for you. But in the meantime, I'm going to pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, verse four, chapter 14, verse 16, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. <clears throat> but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I'll come to you. Before I come back to this earth physically, I'm going to come and be with you internally. I, in the person of the Holy Spirit, am going to indwell you and be in you and comfort you. Matter of fact, in verse 26, as he continues, he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. See, this Comforter will not only comfort you, But he's going to live inside you. He's never going to leave you. He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything I've ever taught you. He's going to empower and enable you in a very supernatural way. And therefore Jesus speaks and tells them in John 16, verse 7, just a few chapters later, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus is going to speak truth now. It's funny, isn't it? You know, isn't it? You know when we, you know, we wonder, well, why do people say that? Okay, now listen, I'm telling you the truth here. Well, you mean to tell me? So you mean you lie then? So now you're making sure I know you're telling truth? <clears throat> well, I can guarantee you Jesus didn't say it in that way. But he says here, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He's saying, wake up, fellas, I got a truth for you. It's going to be hard to swallow. It's going to be difficult for you to understand. Now just, just hold on to your seats, fellas. It's going to be a five-ticket ride. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, verse 7 it is expedient, it's profitable, it's useful for you, it's, it's, it's in your best interest that I go away. Huh? That, that, that's like, are you, what language are you speaking, Jesus? We don't understand. He said, I'm telling you the truth. I'm giving you something you need to understand. This is true. Whether you understand it to be true or not, whether you acknowledge it to be truth or not, whether you accept it to be truth or not, doesn't matter. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It's profitable. It's useful. It's in your best interest that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I'll send him unto you. It's as if the Lord's making it clear to them, listen, I know your hearts are broken and I know that you're concerned about me leaving and you you feel as though everything you've worked for and everything you've strived for is going to be lost. But let me tell you something, it's in your best interest that I leave. It's going to be more profitable for you if I'm not here because the alternative, the, the, the one that I'm going to send in your place that God the Father will send, I should say, in my place, the Holy Ghost, He will be with you always. He will empower you in a way that even I can't. He, in a personal way, in an internal way, will give you the ability to accomplish everything I've called you to do and asked you to do on my behalf. You'll be able to do more with me in heaven and Him inside you than you could do with me here with you. One in three people or close to 33% of people in the United States experience loneliness on a regular basis. Statistics show many young people, particularly those under the age of 30, report being lonelier than their older counterparts. Get this, 61% of younger people in the United States say they are chronically lonely.
0: 61%.
1: Chronically lonely. Younger people. Listen, more than 80% of young people under the age of 18 report feeling lonely. I don't know about you, but that's alarming. Hey, listen, and this is almost equally a, a kind of not alarming, but like unbelievable. Only 40% of people over 65 report feeling occasionally lonely. Wait a second. So people that are over 65, 40% of them occasionally feel lonely, while 80% of young people under the age of 18 report feeling lonely. What's wrong with us? What's going on? 43% of people ages 18 to 25, get this, report feeling unloved. 43%, 18 to 25 I don't know about you, but that's pretty bad. 73% of millennials say they are lonely. The number of people who report having no friends, listen to this, the number of people who report having no friends has quadrupled in the last 30 years. In 1990, just 3% of the population in the United States said that they had no friends. Now it's upwards of 12 no friends you know what that equals a ton of depression anxiety and mental emotional problems people don't know how to handle life can't deal with life they have no one to go through it with them in their minds I'm going to say something, you don't have to agree with it. But I, I, I think we, we, we can say, of course, that Satan's at the, at the root of all of this. But I can tell you this much, he has used our government to bring us to this place too. When you decide that you're going to disintegrate and demoralize and ultimately destroy the family with your policies and your position you are undermining mental health. That's right. Amen. Why in the world do we have more people that need medication than ever? Because the family has been totally and completely obliterated. It's being just systematically destroyed. The support that we once had, that support system that was in place, it's not around anymore. And can I tell you, every time people get on a phone and they talk about being connected, they are disconnected. Unless there's a little bit of this, one-on-one, face-to-face, there's no real connection. You can have a lot of likes, and you can have a lot of followers, and you can have a lot of friends in the sense of online, but those aren't real friends because there's not a one of them that's there when you need them. I don't know about you, but we got a problem with loneliness. No doubt about it in our culture. We got a problem with depression and discouragement and anxiety. and We just got a lot of issues right now. We got people feel the weight and the burden of this world and life on their shoulders and they don't feel they have anyone they can truly turn to. Let me ask you, how thankful are you for the comforter who is with you? who teaches you and fellowships with you always. As a believer, we are never alone. And you say, but I feel alone. Even though I know Christ, I feel alone. May I encourage you to begin to dig into this book and learn about the Savior and about that Holy Spirit that does indeed dwell in you and begin to experience a personal relationship with the one who saved your soul. We have a comforter today. Jesus is no longer on earth physically, but he is in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He said he would be in us. He's with you and he's always there for you. No matter what you're going through. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And you feel like you're all alone, and at night you wake up and you say, there's nobody for me, nobody cares. Know that He loves you, know that He's there in the person of the Holy Ghost, and seek Him out in the Word of God and in your life and prayer and throughout every day. You know, statistics show people under this age, talking about under the age of 40, say, See, the larger portion of people who report having no friends are individuals who are under the age of 40, by the way. That's crazy, isn't it? Statistics show that people under that age socialize less often than people who are 65 years of age and older, even. But watch this they add in the statistics they also do not attend religious services. They go on to say, which is another factor that can influence how lonely a person feels? Can I say that it's too bad that a church attendance is on the decline then? It seems like everybody wants us to believe there's no God in heaven and that church itself is just a fantasy and a waste of time, that all we're going to do is go there and someone's going to ask us for money and they're going to just simply try to get us to build their They're they're, they're dynasties, if you will. But my friend, let me tell you, there's a lot more to it than that. The fact is today is that people that attend church faithfully and consistently are much less lonely because there are people of like mind, like faith that they can fellowship with. And my friend, if you're here today and you say, I have no friends in the church, then get involved. Be faithful and plug in because there are people that will be there with you fighting side by side for the banner of the cross, reaching souls for the kingdom of Christ. Get plugged in. But more than anything, never forget that He lives in you. How thankful are you for the comforter who's in you? See, it's your turn. It's my turn to be thankful. Thankful for what God has done. How thankful are you for such great compassion this this morning? Compassion that moved Christ to leave heaven in search of you. How thankful are you for the man who died for sin? More specifically, your sin. How thankful are you for the Comforter who is with you, teaching you and fellowshipping with you always? Are you thankful enough to receive Him as Savior and Lord if you haven't already? Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, He's worth trusting. And if you're a child of God and you're struggling with being thankful for some of these things, let's get closer to Him. Let's start dwelling on and thinking about and meditating upon those things. Get our eyes off of the headline news and all the tragedy and all the troubles that the world is facing and all the possible problems that we may face in each and every day, all the people who are going through such difficult times that they make sure we know about. And let's start focusing on Christ and fulfilling His purpose and plan for our life to reach a world that's in need. Let's give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. And let's be thankful See, it's my turn. It's your turn to be thankful. Father, we come to you. We're grateful for the opportunity to be here today even, Lord. And we're so glad you came and sought us out. And there may be someone in our midst that has yet to receive and accept you. And the truth is you're you're seeking them. You're knocking on their heart's door. Your Holy Spirit is trying to bring conviction to their life and help them to see themselves as the sinners they are, not to embarrass them, but to help them accept truth and ultimately receive the Savior, to be in a place where they can admit that you alone can save them and no one and nothing else can, that they have nothing to offer you except themselves a sinner and that you in your grace and mercy will be glad to do so. You said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Lord, you came to them. Now they need to come to you. I pray they'd come to Jesus today. And for the believer, help us, Lord, to never forget what you've already done for us. We love you. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed. Every